<laughs> this is my kind of retreat. <laughs> We're all set. <laughs> is everybody familiar with the practice? Just so I have some. Is there anybody who has not done any practice? Or okay. So why don't we start with the sitting? Gather ourselves. Here. <coughs> We'll sit for about 40 minutes or so. In some way this feels like a particularly special time. It's the time of the new year, time of the new century, time of the new millennium, time of the full eclipse of the moon. even though some of those mockings of time are conceptual and really the creation of our own concepts, still it's a cultural phenomenon, a phenomenon that really captured the imagination of a lot of people all over the, all over the globe. So given that we often make New Year's resolutions, sometimes not terribly exalted ones, like eat less, <laughs> or exercise more, or whatever. Uh, I was thinking about what would really be an appropriate resolution for the millennium? You know, what would inspire us for a thousand years, or more? There is one practice, idea, aspiration in Buddhism that really is worthy of that kind of thousand-year resolution. Because it's so vast and it's so noble and so uplifting that it's something that actually could inspire us for that long. And in Buddhism it's called bodhicitta most of you are probably familiar with the concept. The word is in both Pali and Sanskrit. Bodhi, as you know, means awakening, enlightenment, purity. Jitta is the word for heart, mind. And 
you know, in many Asian languages, heart mind is the same word. So when we speak of mind or we speak of heart, think of it as a unity, not as how we so often separate it in the West. So jitta is the heart mind. Bodhijitta is the awakened, the enlightened, the free heart mind. But it has a it has a more specific meaning. which is that it contains within it the aspiration that we live our lives and we do our practice with the motivation to benefit all beings. So this is the flavor of bodhicitta. The aspiration that we live, we practice, we relate with the motivation to benefit all. There are two levels that we can understand bodhicitta on. And these are levels that run throughout all of the Buddhist <coughs> teachings and they're extremely important. Because a lot of the confusion that arises in practice and on a spiritual path is because often we don't understand how these two levels relate to each other. And that is the relative level of experience and the absolute level of experience. So during the course of this weekend, what I'd like to do is to explore the meaning of bodhicitta on both the relative and absolute levels and to see actually how they are expressions of each other. Uh, And this will then have application for so many other aspects of our practice. Just as one sort of preview of the coming attraction of the weekend. It's a line by Rumi uh, which just captures the union of relative and absolute and particularly relative and absolute bodhicitta where he said that emptiness brings peace to love. And I thought that just captured the whole relationship. Emptiness brings peace to love. Okay, so this morning I'd like to begin to explore the relative level of bodhicitta. And we call it relative, the relative level, because we're working with the idea and the experience of individuals, of ourselves as individuals relating to other individuals. It deals with the concepts of self and other. So on that sense, it's the relative level. But to say it's relative does not mean to say it's unimportant because here's where we're living for the most part. And so we need to understand how to live on this level well. The level, the relative level of bodhicitta is compassion and compassionate action. It's that sense or that feeling or that motivation within us that really wants to alleviate the suffering of beings, alleviate the suffering of ourselves and all others. This is a difficult practice 
And it's difficult because compassion arises when we're willing to come close to suffering, when we're willing to open to it. So even though we may honor the notion of compassion, you know, and aspire to it, and even often express it, it's not that easy to actually live it in a full and complete way, because it's not easy to open to suffering. We don't particularly like to open to our own. And we're not so wildly enthusiastic about opening to the suffering of others. And yet it's precisely that ability to come close, a willingness to come close, that allows compassion to come forth. We have some very strong tendencies in the mind that work to keep us closed in the face of suffering. You know, we become defended against it. We don't like to let it in. Sometimes people get aggressive in the face of suffering out of fear of feeling it. You know, so they strike out against it. Perhaps most commonly, we can feel apathetic or indifferent. You know, where we know it's around us or in us, but there's just a certain level of not connecting. There's a poem I'd like to read just to this point by Mary Oliver, who is, you know, just a totally wonderful poet. You'll have to use your imagination a little bit because it's a poem set in snow country. So just imagine yourselves in at IMS. <laughs> uh, and see, just as I read it, I mean, I love having someone read poetry because it really is just a chance to kind of settle in and be right with all the images. Uh, the name of it is Beyond the Snow Belt. Over the local stations, one by one, Announcers list disasters like dark poems that always happen in the skull of winter. But once again, the storm has passed us by. Lovely and moderate, the snow lies down while shouting children hurry back to play. And scarved and smiling citizens once more sweep down their easy paths of pride and welcome. And what else might we do? Let us be truthful. Two counties north, the storm has taken lives. Two counties north to us is far away. A land of trees, a wing upon a map, a wild place never visited. So we forget with ease each far mortality. Peacefully from our frozen yards, we watch our children running on the mild white hills. This is the landscape that we understand. Until the principle of things takes root, how shall examples move us from our calm? I do not say that it is not a fault. I only say, except as we have loved, all news arrives as from a distant land. And I think those last two lines just capture this whole notion 
accept or I only say accept as we have loved. E X accept. Okay. I only say accept as we have loved. All news arise as from a distant land. And how much this reflects our own experience. I mean, especially with our accessibility to news from all over the world. And so the question that really arises, I think, in a very meaningful way, is it possible, or how is it possible, that we can open to, that we can love people two counties north, or three countries south, or people across the ocean? How is it possible to really open? Because that's the place that compassion will come from. So I think what we all share in our understanding is that the possibility for doing this starts with ourselves. We need to learn, we need to be able to open to the pain, the suffering, the difficulty that is right here in our own experience. Because if we can't open here, it will be very difficult to open to that, which is two counties north. So our practice starts right here, with our own experience. And we practice learning to be with what's difficult. You know, I remember in the very beginning stages of my practice, when I went to India, it was after the Peace Corps, just trying to learn how to say it. It was impossible to sit cross-legged like for more than five minutes. It was so painful. You know, and so I'd sit for five minutes and then I'd get up and... And just to watch over the years... You know, now it's 15 minutes. (laughs) 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 An hour, however long. But just the ability that one actually learns that physical comfort is okay. I mean, it's a slow process, and of course we're still learning it. But there's a greater ability to just open to what's uncomfortable, to what's painful. We see it a lot with our bodies, and of course as we age, this gets more and more critical that we do this. And it's not only opening, of course, to the physical discomfort or physical pain. It's also opening to psychological or emotional pain. Can we really be with it? instead of keeping it at a distance, or staying closed, or staying defended. Because all those years of practicing in Asia, it was almost like the whole place was designed to practice being with discomfort, (laughs) of one kind or another. You know, so many stories. I mean, just one comes to mind. There are, there are many, and I'm sure you've heard of different retreats, different of these stories. Oh, one in particular comes to mind now. You know, I had been practicing in Bodhgaya. It gets very hot in the summer, extremely hot, like 120, 125 mm-hmm. degrees. So anybody who can goes up to the mountains. We had, I had rented this little uh, cottage up in Dalhousie, which is what they call a hill station, you know, which is about seven, 7,000 feet with 
kind of the view of the high Himalayan peaks in distance. So it's just an exquisitely beautiful place. And I'm all set, and I was very into my practice then, doing a lot of intensive sitting and walking. So I'm all set up in this really nice place, and I was going to practice all summer. And then about a month into my retreat up there, just in a field below where the cottage was, one day a lot of buses come up, <laughs> which discharge what I later found out were a group called the Delhi Girls, <laughs> which were a group of kind of paramilitary Girl Scouts or something from New Delhi, up for a month. And as often happens in India and in other places in Asia, same thing in Burma, they set up loudspeakers. And from 6 in the morning to 10 at night, they were blaring this Hindi film music. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> I couldn't believe it on a couple of levels. I couldn't believe it that they were doing this to me. <laughs> when I you know, went there to get enlightened. <laughs> and I couldn't believe that nobody else was disturbed you know, in, in the village. And so I was sitting there and I went through this amazing amount of torment, I mean, anger and rage and frustration. And I was writing letters to the mayor and to the president of India. <laughs> there was nothing to do about it. You know, that was the situation. And it took weeks. It took weeks of going through my own internal process until I could finally, my mind could finally let go of my reaction and simply let the sound be there. And it was amazing, because when my mind could make that switch, when I could actually get okay with what was happening, it wasn't a problem. It wasn't a problem at all. It did not hinder the concentration or my practice to the slightest once I stopped resisting it. And so it was such a powerful lesson you know, in the practice of letting things in rather than trying to keep them out. And of course all the tendencies we have, and which I saw so completely at that time of, you know, just blaming, you know, these people and how they could allow it. And when we can stop the blaming and come to a place of openness, of acceptance, of whatever kind of discomfort or unpleasantness it is, then we come to a place of ease. So this is a tremendously important lesson. We want to be with what's difficult, to see that it's okay to be with what's difficult, but without drowning in it, without getting lost, without getting identified. You know, with what, either with what's happening or with our own reactions. This is really the great gift of mindfulness to compassion, because mindfulness gives us the ability to be with what's painful or difficult, and in that ability to be with the suffering, compassion can arise. Mindfulness here is critical, and without awareness, we just stay in reactive mode. There's, there's one story just to illustrate the 
unbelievable uh, power of mindfulness in the face of difficulty. Uh, some years ago I was on a rafting trip, whitewater rafting, and it was the first time I had gone. It was kind of exciting, and we were sort of in a group of us were in bigger rafts, but then along the guides had brought along an inflatable kayak uh, just to play with, you know, and it was kind of like a bathtub toy, really. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going, I think this was on the uh, Salmon River, the middle fork of the Salmon up in Idaho. So we were on this river, really beautiful, and I thought, oh, it would be fun to play in, the, in this little rubber ducky kayak. <laughs> so I get into the kayak, paddling away, and the guide starts shouting to me, watch out for the hole. I had no idea what he was talking about. <laughs> I had no concept of what a hole in a river meant. <laughs> you know, I knew about holes in ground, <laughs> not holes in rivers. <laughs> so because I didn't know what he was talking about, I ignored him. <laughs> and sure enough, <laughs> and for those of you also who might not know, you know, a hole when the water goes over a rock in a certain way, a big, you know, a big rock in the fast running water, it creates like a little vortex, a whirlpool that you pull down into. So there I am in this little inflatable kayak, you know, over the rock, into the hole. I could totally tumble out, you know, pull down underwater. But of course I was wearing a life jacket, and the buoyancy of the life jacket just pushed me to the surface. But it was so strong it pulled me down again. You know, so it was, it was quite a moment. And then again, the life jacket pushed me up, and then kind of I was out of the hole and floating down the river. Well, in a certain way, I see mindfulness as that life jacket. You know, so when we're in the hole, whatever particular vortex of reactivity or difficulty we're in, and it can be very strong. We can really get pulled into our dramas if we are well-practiced in mindfulness, you know, and we just have that ability to be with it, to stay with it, to stay mindful of what's happening, the mindfulness mm -hmm. just pulls us right back to the surface, free of identification, free of attachment, free of being lost. So there's something really important here in understanding the quality of right effort. Because right effort is not a striving. It's not trying to get something. Now the Pali word for effort, for right effort, is virya. V-I-R-I-Y-A. And in the Buddhist text, I mean the Buddha talked more about virya, you know, as a factor of enlightenment, more than anything else. So it's tremendously important that it doesn't just happen. You know, it's not like we just go along and go along in our lives and suddenly we're completely enlightened and fully liberated. It happens when the causes for it are there. And so there's a certain quality of virya, of effort that's needed. The problem is that as it's translated and as it's talked about, very often virya becomes effort in, and sort of a, 
it almost reinforces that sense of self, of someone to get something. And if only I could strive hard enough, then I'll get it. And especially in our Western culture, our particular psychology, it, there's a lot of uh, difficulties with that way of understanding it. Because we're so, as a culture, there's so much competitiveness, self-competitiveness and self-judgment. There's another way to understand the meaning of Iria. And it's, it's another word that I actually think is more appropriate for us than effort or efforting. And that is the quality of courage. And there's actually a... I don't know if this is the right word. There is a cognate between virya and the quality of uh, strength. You know, like in the word virility, and not not obviously not gender oriented, but it's that quality of energetic strength, courage. And the word for courage, as you know, really comes from the word for heart. I guess in French or Latin, cour. And so when I understood this, and I really saw this applied in the practice, virya is that courage to be present. It's the strength of heart to be present, undistracted, with whatever's arising. It's pleasant, fine. It's unpleasant, fine. We're willing to open. We're willing to be with it. So it's these qualities of mindfulness, of attentiveness, of courage that allows us to be present and in the being present it opens the wellspring of compassion because we're not pulling back then from the suffering that's there. As we learn to do this with ourselves, as we practice doing it with our own experience, then it gives us the strength, the courage, the wisdom, the insight to be with the suffering of others. We can actually be there with others who are in pain, who are in difficulty. And this happens, I think, on several levels. You know, on the first level, we might say that the ability to be present engenders a feeling of empathy. Now, what is empathy? It's that feeling of connection, feeling what somebody else is feeling. And it happens when we can stop long enough to be there. <laughs> Mostly, as, as we all know, our lives are so incredibly busy. It's like we're on this fast track of our lives, whether it's family or jobs or work or projects, whatever. You know, we're toppling forward so much. Empathy arises when, even for a few moments, we can actually stop and be there with somebody and feel what's going on. But compassion is actually something more than empathy. Empathy is the feeling we have, sharing the feeling of other suffering. Compassion contains another element, and it's tremendously significant, I think, that we understand it. And that is the element, not only of feeling, 
the suffering or the difficulty of others, but actually having the motivation to try to alleviate it. So compassion contains within it not only the connectedness, but the energy to want to do something about it. And Thich Nhat Hanh, he's so wonderful in so many ways, he expressed this so clearly. He said, compassion is a verb. (laughs) And so it's not, in this context, it's not enough, really, to, to feel empathy, as important as that is, and that's the foundation. But we want to take it a step further. And we want to really engender that sense of, given this situation, how can I help? That's the move of compassion. So it would be really interesting, just as an experiment, you know, in the course of a day, or for the next week, or however long you can remember, just to particularly pay attention to those times when you come up against some form of suffering. In yourself, in the people you're closest to, and the people on the street, wherever. To really be aware you know, of when we are coming close to suffering, of one kind or another. And then to notice what our responses are. You know, and to do this without judgment and without just as an investigation, as a way of understanding. Are our hearts really open to it? Do we feel that we don't want to get involved, that we pull back, that we're too busy, whatever. Whatever it is, just as a way of beginning to see what our conditioned tendencies are with respect to the sufferings in the world. And again, I I reiterate, this this is not uh, for the purpose of self-judgment. Which is its own suffering. <laughs> it's just—it's really out, out out of great interest. Okay, well, what what do we do in different situations? You know, and to make that explicit for ourselves. So, relative bodhicitta is the energy of compassion you know, and compassionate action. It's that quality that is willing to come close to suffering and is moved to try to do something about it. And we each do this in many different ways. And each one of us will find our own way. There's no, there's no hierarchy of compassionate action. It's like we each find our own particular way of responding. Sometimes it's in very small ways. You know, just with the people around us, maybe with a person who's difficult, who's manifesting difficulty because of their own suffering. How are we with that? Do we react to their difficult behavior? Or can we drop down, even for a few moments, and connect with the suffering that's causing it? happens a lot. You know, we all both have been that person <laughs> and are with people like that. So it's just 
Can we be kinder in that moment? You know, can we be more generous? Sometimes this move of compassion and action is more dramatic. You know? we're, we're really in very difficult situations. People actually become heroic you know, in the face of tremendous difficulty. You know, so many examples of this. Uh, but just, of course, the other day, Martin Luther King Day, you know, he so represents and I'm sure you remember both the images and the stories and the, you know, of him walking down the street with violence and hatred coming at him from all sides, committed to maintaining the space of love. That ain't easy. You know, and to, to make that a practice you know, in the face of tremendous difficulty and even personal threat. So that's another range. I have a friend uh, who's working his... Uh, he had been the head of the... Uh, I forget the exact name of the organization, but it was the Campaign Against Toxic Waste. Uh, and the stories, he would tell me, he would go to these towns you know, in cities, often in very poor neighborhoods, where the toxic wastes were dumped, and, you know, kind of disastrous consequences for the people living there. And it was just, it was very beautiful, and he's this very compassionate guy, you know, and he just goes and puts himself in those situations to try and help. Uh, and it was really inspiring to me. And compassion action is not always even externally directed in that way, even though it often is. We could be practicing bodhicitta sitting in a cave if the intention is there that that practice, that work, be for the benefit of all. That's why I say there's no hierarchy of compassion actions. It's not that one is more compassionate than another. There's a wonderful line from Pascal, which it should be the motto of IMS and Spirit Rock. He said, most of the problems in the world would be solved if people could learn to sit quietly in a room. <laughs> you know, because where do most of the problems come from? They come from people's very agitated minds. <laughs> and the greed and fear and anger and that's manifesting. And so the work we do in solitude, in practice, of purifying our minds is a tremendous contribution. Especially if it's done with that motivation. May this be for the benefit of all. So, how can we practice it? How can we practice this relative bodhicitta, compassion and compassionate action? In the Buddhist tradition, two different sides are highlighted. And I think it's really helpful to understand these two sides because there are dangers in each that the other helps avoid. And so it becomes a very complete picture when we understand both sides. 
one side of practicing bodhicitta is represented very clearly in the Pali texts where the Buddha talked about how by taking care of ourselves we automatically take care of others and taking care of means purifying our own hearts and minds and in a way it's obvious to the degree that we're less (coughs) selfish less self-centered automatically we're more generous we're kinder we're more compassionate we're freeing ourselves from the fixation of self-orientation and in one of the suttas this the example the Buddha used in just this point it was an example of two uh, acrobats you know this is you know back in the time of the Buddha almost like I don't know the trapeze artists or how, mm. however they did it then and they came to see him <coughs> and one of the acrobats said that the way I practice you know, this skill is by watching out for the other person and the Buddha and normally you'd hear that yeah that sounds right but the Buddha actually said no the better way is actually to watch out for yourself that you don't miss your footing and in taking care of yourself you're able to take care of others and it just it just feels very grounded so instead of some ideal you know oh yes I'm gonna work for the benefit of all beings and ignore the work that needs to be done here it's not realistic now there's the example of two people stuck in the mud you know kind of sinking down in a kind of quicksand very hard for either one to help the other as long as both are stuck if one person has a foot on firm ground then it actually becomes possible to help the other so this is one side you know that by taking care of ourselves we are then in a position to benefit others okay the other angle on this practice of bodhicitta is very much highlighted by uh, the great Indian Buddhist sage and adept uh, Shantideva who wrote The Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life uh, and of course the Dalai Lama is you know, a great devotee of Shantideva speaks and writes often about it and he himself is this amazingly radiant example of that way of practice and Shantideva's emphasis is putting others before oneself thinking of others as being more important than oneself right? so it's a, different, it's a different approach I want to read, if I have it this is uh, a few stanzas uh, from Shantideva and it's this is a wonderful book, by the way. If you um, if you haven't read it, the um, Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life, and the Dalai Lama wrote a commentary on it, which is also really beautiful. And the title starts with a flash of lightning 
in something. Yeah, in, in the Dark Knight. Yeah. So I would really recommend that because it's it's a beautiful commentary on how to live the Bodhisattva's way of life. So this is just a few stanzas from Shantideva expressing this aspiration. For everything that lives, as far as are the limits of the sky, may I provide their livelihood and nourishment until they pass beyond the bonds of suffering. For all those ailing in the world, until their every sickness has been healed, may I myself become for them the doctor, nurse, the medicine itself. Raining down a flood of food and drink, may I dispel the ills of thirst and famine. And in the ages marked by scarcity and want, may I myself appear as drink and sustenance. For sentient beings, poor and destitute, may I become a plentiful, plentiful treasure. My body thus, and all my goods besides, and all my merits gained and to be gained, I give them all away withholding nothing to bring about the benefit of beings. That's quite an aspiration. <laughs> And when we read this or hear it, I mean, I can get tremendously inspired. I mean, this is the resolution for the millennium. Mm. You know, could we resolve to practice this? You know, that our lives are dedicated to the benefit of all beings. So in one sense, it's tremendously inspiring. In another sense, it's a little overwhelming. You know, <laughs> this is a big one. And given our own mix of motivations, you know, is it realistic? Is it, is it something we actually could begin to practice? I'll just share with you one story of mix of motivations. And being honest about what's going on in our own minds so that we're not just creating some romantic, idealized picture of how we should be disconnected from how we actually are because that's, I think, not that helpful. I was on retreat uh, at home. So I was sitting for a couple of months and I was reading through some of the suttas and I came upon this one sutta uh, about faith. You know, some of you probably know Sharon Salzberg, my colleague and friend is in the process of writing a book on faith. And so I thought, boy, this, there was a story in the sutta. This is a great story you know, for her book. So that was my first thought. I have to back up a minute, sort of give a framework for this little episode. Among Dharma teachers, there is a fierce competition for good stories. <laughs> I mean, a good story is worth a lot. <laughs> yeah, okay, so that's the background. We're like story vultures. Okay, so back to, back to the story. <laughs> so I'm reading this, this, this you know, story on Kaya. Oh, channel really like this one. It'd be good for a book. That was my first thought. My second thought is, no, I want this for myself. <laughs> this would be a good story for a Dharma talk. Third thought. No, 
I'll give it to Sharon, and that way I'll make all this good karma, and more stories will come back to me. <laughs> and then forethought, no, that's just being selfish, <laughs> you know. And a lot of so then I thought, fifth thought. Okay, I'll give her the story, but I'll also tell her about this kind of struggle my mind went through, you know, just so she appreciates <laughs> really what I'm doing here. <laughs> you know, hope to inculcate a little feeling of guilt. debt. <laughs> Not so much guilt debt, so you know. <laughs> And then I thought, what's going on here? Where can I kind of come back to a moment of real generosity in this run of conflicting and rather unskillful motivations? And I was just watching because I was on retreat. I was actually able just to track all of this in my mind. You know, and what I saw after my mind had run through this, I saw that there actually was a place of reconnecting with the just initial generous impulse and that was even after all these other thoughts had run their course to go back to that first thought and to say yeah, there was that initial impulse this would be a great story for her you know be in her book and so rather than get caught in a lot of self-judgment about having had all those other thoughts just to see yeah, they're in the mind too and I don't have to act on them I can let them run their course and come back and reconnect again to that impulse. So I think it's the same way with this very vast aspiration of bodhicitta that's expressed by Shantideva. You know, where we perhaps just plant the seed of having this aspiration even as we see all the other things in our lives. You know, but it becomes a reference point reminding us, yeah, there's another possibility here. And we can follow the Dalai Lama's lead a little bit, and even that book, Flesh of Lightning in the Night Scott and Dark Dark of Night. Dark of night. <laughs> uh, where he said it's very very cute. He said, Sometimes I wonder why a lot of people like me. <laughs> you know, I, I don't see in myself any especially good quality, except for one small thing, and that is the kind heart. And then he goes on to say, I can't really pretend to practice bodhicitta, because this is the Dalai Lama speaking, but deep inside me I realize how valuable and beneficial it is, that is all. You know, it just, it's so refreshing, you know, okay, here's this being. May my relationships be for the benefit of all. You know, so the seed gets watered, and slowly the roots start <laughs> spreading. So these are the two approaches. At the first approach, by taking care of ourselves, we automatically take care of others. And the other approach, putting others before oneself. Now the two dangers I mentioned, inherent in each one, which the other mitigates against, if we are taking care of ourselves without this sense of bodhicitta, of doing it for the benefit of others, it can get a little tight and narrow and self-oriented. Now, where the work is good, we are purifying our minds, but it's not as expansive 
as it could be, because if it's without that sense, yes, let this be for the benefit of all. So Shanti Deva's approach really opens up you know, the view and the motivation as we're purifying ourselves. The danger on the other side, you know, putting others before oneself, it can easily go into neurotic codependence. You know, and people have come up and asked about this, you know, to when I'm talking about this, where we're always putting others before oneself, but not in a healthy way, not in a way that's actually genuinely from a place of bodhicitta, but from a place of feeling unworthy, you know, or not good enough, and so we always need to be putting others before oneself. That's not what this is about. And the first approach helps balance that by saying, yes, we put others before ourselves, but this is a way of actually working on ourselves, of purifying our own hearts and minds. So this is strengthening of the qualities within me that are important. Do you see how the two, they really feed into one another? And so instead of thinking of them as polarities, or this tradition says this and this tradition says that, it's not that. They come together in the most complete and balanced way. So all of this is about relative bodhicitta. It's the development of compassion and compassionate action. It comes when we're willing to come close to suffering, our own and others. And it's that motivation, this resolution for the next thousand years, that our work, that our practice, that our lives, be dedicated to the benefit of all. I think I'll stop here for now. Um, instead of having questions and discussion now, why don't we do a walking period, still in silence, for about half an hour? And then we'll come back and we can talk about all this. Um, this afternoon we'll go into a discussion of absolute bodhicitta, and then tomorrow we'll begin to see how it all fits together. Okay, so fortunately it's weather is good and find a place outside. Uh, you know, and either, either do back and forth walking or even if you go for a little bit of a longer walk, really do it in a mindful way. You know, don't, don't just take it as space out time really be in the body and just be open. Be open to the movement of the body, to the sounds, to the air. And so there's really that quality of undistracted presence. Why don't we plan to uh, come back at 20 after 12? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.